to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. What we haven't necessarily learned to do around the issue of diversity and inclusion is to acknowledge the barriers and talk with candor and openly about the challenges. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. That clip was from Jenna Etienne, Director of Diversity and Inclusion with Grant Thornton in the Washington, D.C. area. One of the great bonuses of doing what I do is that I get to learn so much from our guest by simply recording the show. And this episode was definitely one of those opportunities for me. Jenna is very open about her career journey, and she's had a very interesting and dynamic career. We're going to cover diversity and inclusion, of course, but also how she built her own firm. And through visioning where she wanted to go with that effort, it led her to a job that she thoroughly enjoyed and was invigorated by with the AICPA. And then we discussed becoming the CEO for NABA, the National Association for Black Accountants. And then we get into her current role in DNI with Grant Thornton. This really is a great story of working within your passions and doing something where you can truly see the differences that you're making along the way. Excellent, excellent story. If you do find value in this episode with Shana for yourself, please check us out online. You can find us at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. We have all our other podcast episodes, of course, and we have some publications that are meant specifically for you, the accountant that is looking to grow their career. One specific publication you may want to check out is our book, 49 Tips for a Successful Accounting Career. You can find it on Amazon, of course, in paperback and Kindle, but we have it available for immediate shipping on our website at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. It's really meant for accounting students and then those that are probably in the first you know, zero to five years of their career journey and looking to continue to grow. Once again, that's 49 tips for a successful accounting career. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started. Here is Jana Etienne, Director of Diversity and Inclusion with Grant Thornton. Well, hello, Jana. Thank you for making the time for us today. Thanks. I'm happy to be here, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. It will be fun. It will be fun. Well, for the audience, we've been expanding geographically with regards to our guest invites. And through our recent episodes featuring Maryland area guests that I came across, Jenna Etienne. Jenna is at a a very diverse, successful, and, and frankly, it looks like a fun career as well. It spans public accounting, association management, and now even the diversity area as she's a director with Grant Thornton for diversity and inclusion. It's been quite a career. Jenna, I definitely want to get into the details 
of all those experiences along the way and certainly into your current role as well. But I always like to start at the beginning so our audience you know, gets an idea of, of how your career progressed and how you got to where you are today. What initially caused you to think that accounting you know, might be a career worth pursuing in the first place? Well, you know, thank you for inviting me. I'm actually excited to be here. And I'll tell you, my answer is not sexy. So apologies for that in advance. But I wanted to be an attorney. And that's what I told my mom when I was 12. I was going to be an attorney. I was going to go to law school. And I was going to, she thought it'd be great because I like to argue. And then in high school, I was dating a guy whose mother was just, she was a rock star. I just thought she was cool. And she worked not only in law, but in international business. And so I just decided that's what I want to be when I grow up. So I go to college. I start studying business, some pre-law classes, and it's killing me. And I'm, I'm dying over here. I happen to be on a scholarship. It actually connects to where I am in my workplace now, uh, in my role now. The scholarship, I went to American University, and it was for African-Americans, um, full-paid scholarship. And so I qualified for that scholarship, and I was on that scholarship, but it required me to, number one, maintain a full-time class schedule the entire time I was there. And number two, I had to declare a major by the end of my sophomore year. So I get to college, I'm taking classes on this, I want to be a lawyer thing. Not really liking what I am experiencing, accounting is a required course if you want to get a business degree. So the only thing I knew that I had to take was accounting. So I waited until the last possible second, the second semester, sophomore year, to take principles of accounting, and I got an A. My professor, Paul LaMonica, he did a great job, but I, he laughed when I went up to him at the end of the class and I asked him almost a quote, is it always this easy? And he laughed out loud. And I didn't know why it was funny because I genuinely was trying to figure out how hard can it be, this accounting thing, right? <laughs> and I told him I wanted to be a lawyer. He said, a CP, CPA, JD is a great combination. And so I walked out of his office and I went over to the whatever office at school was and changed my major to accounting. I had no idea what a CPA was. I had no idea what JD stood for. I didn't want to look stupid, so I didn't ask. And then I called my mom and I said, what if I get an accounting degree? And she said, well, you'll always have a job. Everybody needs an accountant. Every business has one. So I changed my major and I never even once thought about public accounting, nor did I even know the profession existed until after I got a job. But that's a separate story. Wow. It's interesting, actually. So many of our guests have become accountants because they accidentally figured out they were good at it. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy. I learned why he left. Accounting isn't an easy subject, but the comment he made to me then, and I still believe this to this day, is accounting is one of those subjects. You get it or you don't. And I have a very logic, structured, process-oriented brain. And I like things that have process and structure. And math has always been something that I was good at, even though today I can't do arithmetic, for the record. Never go to dinner and ask me to calculate a tip because we'll be there for an extra hour. But people laugh when I say I can't do arithmetic. But I can do, you know, I specialized in tax for almost 26 years. I used to be able to ballpark somebody's adjusted gross income and even estimate their quarterly tax payments by just throwing some things around in my head. But I couldn't calculate a tip at a restaurant. So, I mean, it's, it's just the way the brain functions. And if you're good at it, and if math is something that speaks to you, absolutely a career that people should consider because it's really about the analysis, not about the numbers. 
That's so true. You know, in so many fine dining restaurants these days, I mean, there's just not enough room for a tin key on the table. <laughs> trying to no, that. but there's a, trust me, there's an app for that. <laughs> I have it <laughs> on, on, on my, I, both of my phones and my iPad, just in case, you know, just in case. <laughs> That's wonderful. So you decide to major in accounting, you go through school. How did you get your first job and what was that, that, what was that first role like? So, yeah, I'm just a story inside of a story. Um, so I know I want to be an accounting major, but I'm thinking, and in my mind, accounting meant working in the accounting operations department of a company somewhere. Think bookkeeper or slightly higher than that. I didn't understand even that there was such a thing as like a controller or a CFO. I had no concept. When I was in college, I was working full-time while going to school full-time. I had to go to school full-time because I would lose my scholarship. I didn't. But I had to work full-time because I needed a place to live. I was completely an independent student. And in fact, my younger brother moved out of my, our parents' home and moved in with me the second half of my sophomore year. So I wasn't thinking of careers. I was just trying to take classes that were easy. And at one point, I took a tax class. And I kid you not, it was like, oh, you know, like the, the heavens opened up and like the stars aligned. And I thought, this is fascinating. I always wanted to be an attorney, tax law, but I'm good at math and accounting accounting degree. So that reinforced my decision to major in accounting. And I thought tax is something that I wanted to do. And wouldn't you know, I saw an internship opportunity at this place called, and this is what I thought it was called, Touche, Roth. (laughs) They were offering, wait for it, $10 an hour. Okay. And, And I could work for 40 hours a week. And I did the math. If I did that and got another part time gig, like on the weekends and stuff, I totally could, and my brother was helping me with rent and stuff, we could make it. And so I quit my full-time job. My full-time job was as an um, assistant manager at a local apartment complex. That's how I got my rent paid for and everything, and it was a full-time job. But I quit that job, and I got the internship with Touche Ross. As it would turn out, Touche Ross was hiring into the tax department. They were trying to figure out, can they do direct hires into tax from undergrad, because up until that point, it had been you had to go to audit, work for two years before you could transfer to tax. And people in tax had to have either a law degree or they were pursuing their LLMs or something like that. So they decided to just give it a shot, and they hired a couple folks out of American University to work for them this one tax season to see how it went. I was one of those lucky hires. They didn't recruit at American University, but I got a job in the Big Eight back then in the field tax that I turned out to love. I mean, that's like winning the lottery for me. If I look back, I couldn't have crafted a strategy to get me where I ended up. And I'm forever grateful for those opportunities because it's the kind of thing that you can't make up. As a result, I can't even really give good advice to people on how to strategize because I didn't. I wish I had a better story, but that's just the way it happened for me, and I'm internally grateful for it. You were in the right place at the right time and took advantage of it and then worked hard. Nothing wrong with that. Appreciate that, and I did work hard. When I was looking online, it looked like you had your own firm almost immediately after getting your master's degree, which seems young to me. Tell me about that. (laughs) Tell us more. It it was young. But I was at Touche. If you add my internship and everything, I was at Touche for just over five years, I think it was. I have to do the math. Was it four and a half, five years, something like that? When I left... They had just merged with Deloitte, Haskins and Self. So it was Deloitte and Touche when I left. And, you know, as you can imagine, after a merger, culture shifts, expectation shifts, 
process shifts. And I wasn't feeling very happy in my role. And so I decided to leave and start my own practice. I figured, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, that's me. I'm, a, I'm hardwired and optimist. Try to look at the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen was it wouldn't work and I go out and get another job. So I thought, give it a try. I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit and I believed that I could help people in a way that might be different than what some other folks do. And I also will tell you that I didn't see myself staying to partner. It was never my aspiration because I never really felt like I fit in. So that kind of speaks to the work I'm doing today. I never really felt like I fit in. And so I stayed as long as I could. And the last year and a half that I was there, I was paying very close attention to operations, process, structure, software, methodologies, because I wanted to be able to identify how I would do it in my own firm. And then when I left and started my practice, the reality was I was only doing my own firm work about 20 hours a week. I did subcontractor work for other small firms in the area because that was another good way to see how other firms did things. And so that's what I did for several years. You don't see it on my resume because I was trying to hold myself out as a self-employed sole proprietor, even though the reality was I was semi-self-employed and semi-contractor for probably about four years before I was able to drop all of that and go full-time. That's a smart way to go, though, because you're building your own, but at the same time, you're continuing to learn. That was one of my curiosities is that you hadn't been in the accounting world all that long, you know, and then then you were starting your own. So, yeah, yeah, it's a really smart way to go. Well, but I think, remember, and maybe this is just, I see, I sometimes see things differently, but one of the things that I learned, and I'm grateful for this lesson early on in practice, was that I needed to be a really good entrepreneur. I only needed to be a competent accountant. And my husband, at some point, I don't remember how many years after, quit his job and went back to school to get his MBA. And when he quit his job, he was home with the kids full time for probably about five months before classes started. And one night he just needed to get out of the house because they were driving him crazy. So he went to the mall. He went to the bookstore. They used to have those then. And he stumbled upon a book. He thought, I'll just read magazines or something. And he saw the title, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And he opened the book and he was flipping through it. And he said that he looked up and he realized he'd been standing there still reading this book after like 40 minutes. So maybe there's something to this. So he bought it. He read the book, loved the book, and decided to see what else Robert suggested to read. One of the books that he suggested to read was The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. So my husband read that book and immediately handed it to me and said, you need to read this. So I read that book and my business changed almost immediately. And I recognized the fact that I can be okay as an accountant and get by, but my firm will never be successful if I don't run it like a smart entrepreneur. And so I shifted my mindset into thinking about branding, about communication, about strategy, about client service, about methodology. Because if I messed up a return, I could amend it. But if I messed up the client relationship, that might not be repairable. And so that was my focus is really how to run a really good business where the service I happened to be delivering, in this case, was a tax return, but I could have easily been building a business to sell shoes or, you know, lawn. I would have been using the same mentality around firm management. You were were self-employed a long time, and I know you're not doing that now. So tell us about your practice and what we should know and and then how you eventually decided to, to transition out. So my practice... I specialized in tax, S-Corps for small consultants, small consultancies. So my largest client would have had, I think my largest client had four or five 
shareholders. And it was an area of law that had been evolving at the time because when people formed LLCs and then elected S status, at the time, it was sort of weird and unusual way back then. Today, it's not so unusual, but I developed a whole area of expertise in that space and as a result, quickly grew a business in that space. And so in my practice, I really liked the fact that I tried to stay cutting edge and really think about different and innovative ways, innovative ways to do things. But I also tried to approach my clients as a whole unit. So if you were my client, I was worried about your business, operations, success, and everything that I knew to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to work with you as a fellow entrepreneur to help. But I also knew that you needed my expertise on the accounting and tax side, and it didn't stop at the company. It also affected, if you're an S corporation, it affected your personal tax return. And so I tried to give my, look at my clients as an entire ecosystem that I served rather than simply looking at them as a tax return or an accounting client. My tagline was, more than just the accountant, your partner in business, or something like that. And I really believed that to be true and worked really hard at honing and developing marketing messaging, website messaging, network messaging, and things like that to reinforce that I'm your business partner. I just happen to know how to do the taxes part really well. Okay. And I really started to think about how to, as a small firm, how can I grow this business? And at the end of my, I was in practice 17 years, and somewhere around the 15 and a half, 16-year mark, my husband and I started looking at how to grow my business to become a virtual firm that I could run using staff across the country rather than having to have it based in a particular city. And I could really target clients across the United States in a different way. And in the process of doing that, at the time I was a volunteer for the AICPA on their private companies practice section executive committee. And they did a lot of work in how to support and provide resources for and provide best practices for small firms. It was around the time that I was trying to reimagine my firm and I was working uh, volunteering for the AICPA that the position at the AICPA came up. And when they asked me if it was something I'd be interested in, I thought this would be a more impactful way to help business. Not only can I help business directly as a CPA in practice, but could you imagine how helpful it would be if all the small firms were able to be more effective and work with less stress and have better relationships with their clients and the impact that that could have on business. So I thought this would be a great way to continue the journey that I've been on about entrepreneurialism and business process excellence and that kind of thing. Why not take these skills to the AICPA and do it there? So that's what I did. Interesting. Interesting. How long were you at AICPA? And, and I don't know how else to ask this, but what's it like to work for AICPA? I just, I'm familiar with association management, you know, per se, mm-hmm. but it seems like a very big, prestigious job. You know, it was, and I was honored to have the opportunity. And I will say that even to this day, it was a job that I think I did with the least amount of effort. I just, I loved that job. I loved working there. The people were great. Working at an association is a thankless job. I know that from volunteer work that I did with smaller associations when I was self-employed. I worked, I was president of Women Business Owners of Montgomery County for a couple of years. I was involved in community tax aid locally for many years and then employed at AICPA and at NABA. And the challenge with associations is members, there's a certain sense of entitlement you get as a member that you want the association to be giving you things, but you also want them to be advocating for you and doing things. The challenge is when you have a population as diverse as the AICPA does, if there's somebody 
in accounting, doing accounting or connected to accounting and a member of the ASCPA, they're going to be in their seat and in their chair thinking, I need this, I want that, I wish you would, dot, dot, dot. But there are 75 different variations of that theme across the membership. So it's a challenging job, which makes it an exciting job. You have to communicate to the membership that you understand their needs and you're doing the best to serve their needs, but you're trying to prioritize because we have a budget that's not unlimited, so we have to think about what we do. And if you're doing advocacy work, translation lobbying or working with regulators and things, you have to be anticipatory about the things that are coming down the pike and the implications of those things, even though they haven't come to pass. That's just the nature of the work. And so, I mean, I love that. And that's what I did at the AICPA. My job was, I was responsible for the tax section. And I also led the group that managed, oversaw, and worked through regulatory tax ethics. So I became a bit of a subject matter expert there. I was geeky at coming in, but I got really all in when I was at the AICPA. And it was an exciting job because some of it was communications and membership support and resource development. Some of it, there was a lot of speaking opportunity. There was as well as um, helping with the advocacy work and not exciting, but critically important work. If it's an area that affected the profession, I had an opportunity to see into it, connect to it, understand it, and work with it in so many different ways. And I really loved it. Yeah, it looks like at that level of involvement in the profession, I mean, did after a few years, do you just get burned out. I mean, you can only run at full speed for so long. And that, like you said, that's a big job with a high amount of responsibility. Personally, you know, you feel responsible to the membership and you describing it, it makes me tired. <laughs> really? You know, it's funny. Well, first of all, you have teams. The work at the AICPA wouldn't ever get done without the enormous, just the huge lesions of volunteers that are committed and passionate about serving the profession. I have to say I feel lucky that I ended up in public accounting. It's the only career I've ever had. Even when I was at NABA, my strongest connection was to public accounting because that was my background, even today at Grant Thornton. It's an entire ecosystem that I've been in ever since I graduated college, and I'm grateful for that. And so that type of connectivity to me, I never got tired at the AICP. I was always excited. There was always something new to do. There were teams of people there to help you. Yes, it's a difficult thing when you ask to juggle 75 balls, they're all glass, you can't drop one, and then somebody wants to throw a new one in the mix. That can be challenging at times. But I would rather be busy, challenged, and trying to push the envelope any day than bored. That's not an environment for everyone, but if that's the type of environment that you like, one that's busy and focused and committed and with some really hardworking, smart people, that's a great organization to work with. And four. Okay. Now, you've mentioned NABA a couple times, and just so the audience fully understands, we're talking about the National Association of Black Accountants. I'm picturing you're at AICPA. I'm very active in the State CPA Society in Texas. When I think of AICPA, I think of a much larger organization, and the thought of endless resources comes in mind, and I'm sure it's not endless, but just a very large organization. And then going to NABA, I would think that was a major shift. Tell us about that transition. And it seems like an exciting opportunity because you were were the president, right? CEO? Right. I was president and CEO. And it was. It was a a fantastic opportunity. And one of the things that I became aware of when I was at the AICPA was how 
diversity was a really important challenge, significant challenge for the profession, but also one that I felt not affected by. And it got me curious. How can I, who visibly look at me, I look like an African-American woman. I'm biracial. If you saw me and you didn't know my background, you just assume I was black. How could I then navigate this space, which is still predominantly male and still predominantly white, but was more so then back when I started? When did I graduate college in 89? something like that. So back in the late 80s and in the early 90s, it was even more predominantly male and more predominantly white. How could I then get all the way to, say, 2015 and only then realize I don't feel like I've struggled against the barriers that I know exist? Boy, am I lucky. Wow, maybe I can do something about this. And to have the opportunity then to do something about it was incredible. How do you say no to something like that? When I was presented with that opportunity, I thought, again, just like going to the AICPA to drive meaningful and impactful change for a broader society, I wanted to do it here for a very specific and dear community to me to try to drive meaningful change. And that's really the beginning of my shift out of public accounting into what is now my D&I role here at Grant Thornton. Okay. Before we move on, what, what did you enjoy the most about those couple of years with NABA? And you know, I guess what are you, for lack of a better word, what are you proud of? For, for yourself during that time? What do you feel you accomplished? Um, that time, and it still is something I'm proud of today, one of the things I love to do is to be a speaker and to speak and to speak on things that I'm really passionate about, maybe not so much the technical stuff. But I can't tell you how many times when I was at NABA events, particularly the student event, when I saw the impact that we were having and when I had an opportunity to speak to the students and talk honestly about the kinds of challenges you may have, but the mindset you might want to consider having or ways to go to work through those challenges, but also acknowledging that what they're talking about, that question that they just asked or that issue that they just raised, it's very real. And not to let anybody marginalize you or make you feel stupid. You know, those moments, those presentations, those conversations, there's no single one I'm most proud of. What I'm proud of is being able to have them, being willing to engage in them. I'm never afraid of anything. You can ask me any question. I'm not afraid to talk about any subject. Not everybody's bold and willing to talk about everything, but I am, especially if I think it can help you. And that's been an experience that I've had. I mean, even last year, right before I started at Grant Thornton, I was invited to do a keynote session, a closing session at a corporate retreat. And the conversation, the presentation was about diversity in the profession and what's the challenge with diversity. And I really wanted to talk about inclusion. I used um, Verna Meyer's quote, diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. I used that as a basis for the presentation and really talked about how every single person in that room, diversity and inclusion isn't something we're going to fix because we educate everybody about it or because companies create these beautiful strategies. Don't get me wrong, it's important. Change will happen one heart at a time. And so my goal that day was to just connect with one heart in the room. And I'll tell you that afterwards, I had people coming up to me saying, wow, that was so impactful to me. Wow, that really meant a lot. Those moments when students came up and thanked me, or when people hear a presentation like that that I do and tell me how it meant something to them, those are the proudest moments I have had or will ever have, I think, in my entire career. So let's have some tough talk here a little bit. 
So what does the accounting profession need to know about diversity or, or what do we need to work on? Well, I think it starts with we need to be more honest as a profession. You know, accountants, public accounting specifically, let me be clear, because it's least diverse in the public accounting space. It's more diverse in corporate industry and in not-for-profit space. And most in the highest levels of diversity are in government. But if you look in public accounting, one of the things we master as CPAs serving the client is how to show up and speak the way we're supposed to speak to get the job and maintain the client. That means that as a profession, we aren't necessarily authentic ourselves. We're professional. But what we haven't necessarily learned to do around the issue of diversity and inclusion is to acknowledge the barriers and talk with candor and openly about the challenges. For example, I remember being at NABA, having conversations with representatives from a variety of different companies, no company in particular, but particularly in CPA firms that were asking you know, us for ideas and recommendations to help improve their recruiting so they can recruit more diverse candidates. And I would ask them, well, are you going to HBCUs? That's a historically black college or university. Because HBCUs are predominantly African-American, but not only African-American. And I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but there's a large percentage of white students that go to HBCUs and not black. So all the other cultures and races, you will get a tremendous amount of diversity recruiting at an HBCU. But I can't tell you how many times people said, well, no, we only go to XYZ College University. And my thought, and I sometimes said, so let me get this straight. You want to improve your diversity recruiting by going to the same schools, doing the same thing, and actually expecting a different result. It's that kind of conversation. I didn't say that often. I did say that, though. (laughs) I have been known to say that. I don't say it to be hurtful. I say it to challenge their thinking because sometimes only when you see something in the mirror do you go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that's what it looked like. Thank you for telling me that. So I tried to pick my opportunities. But I think as a profession, those are the kinds of conversations we need to talk about. We need to talk about recruiting, number one, because I also got tired of hearing things like, well, we can't find good minorities. What is that code for? What do you mean? Is it because you see us in through the lens of a stereotype, or is it because we really just don't have the grade? Or is it because our style is different from your style, and therefore you think we're not good? So good is a question of style and behavior and experience, not about technical competency. And so this is what I mean by candor. As a profession, when we can be honest about those questions and start to really explore those answers, I believe we'll start to make meaningful progress. Thank you. I figured this is a good opportunity to get some of those thoughts out. Thank you. What do you feel, if you think about over the entire length of your career, what do you feel maybe the profession is doing well or, or, or maybe that's too strong a word even, but what strides have we made over time? What have you seen in your career that's changed? Well, gender diversity, if you're still talking specifically about DNI, we've started to really see a difference across the gender diversity in leadership and across firms. We still see a challenge where, you know, women in particular, and men more so as you see men adopting a different mindset around parenting, but women, when they have children, sometimes struggle to come back to firms if the firm expects you to show up, work, behave, and engage the same way after you've had a child as you have before you have a child, where afterward you might need some more flexibility. Or maybe you want to work a slightly reduced schedule. We still work in a profession that at times 
might use words and language around things like, well, if she only wants to work 30 hours a week, and now it's already positioned as a she's not really doing what? Performing at her best, giving her optimum output or, or whatnot. I think that there's tremendous progress that we've made in the gender space. I'm just saying there's a little bit more work to do. But then again, think about it. Diversity, this is a journey. It is not a destination. No matter where we are along the path, there's always going to be another step we could take. So I'm not suggesting that there's a finish line here. And I think that's where there's the most amount of opportunity because we are starting to see more open conversations. We are starting to see people rethink their strategies. And we are starting to see firms acknowledge that maybe they've not necessarily gotten it as right and, and want to do better going forward. Through your experience at NABA or and or, you know, in your current role with Grant Thornton, being, being so involved with diversity now, I mean, what, what have you learned personally that has maybe mm-hmm. surprised you? What did you not know before you started working mm-hmm. in this field? Generally, I'll say this is a theme for my whole career. Remember I said earlier that when I was at Touche, I didn't really feel like I fit in. I didn't see myself as a partner, so it never was on my, it was never even on my list of things I wanted to pursue. And I felt like I needed to be a certain way and behave a certain way. And I'm not really good at covering up. I generally don't lie. Working on when you need to tell little white lies for it to be polite, I'm still not even good at those. <laughs> so I tell people, never ask me my opinion if you really don't want to hear it. Like, if, don't ask me, how do you like this dress? If you're not sure, like, because if I don't, I'll tell you and then feelings will be hurt. But I say that because I've always been open, direct. I share a lot. I overshare. You probably are hearing it here in this interview, right? I've learned that that's actually okay. I used to try to cover up. I used to try to hide things because I believed the messaging that I inferred in firms that I needed to be a certain way. And I didn't like being that way. Part of the reason I started a firm is so that I didn't have to comply with any of those things. I could truly be myself. What came along the way and the biggest lesson I learned is it's okay to be myself. People will still like me and I can still be successful. I don't have to look like Joe or I don't have to act like Lisa or I don't have to behave like they taught me over here in XYZ school. I can be myself and I can give my best work if I make a mistake. I'll call myself out on it. And I'm okay with being wrong. I just want the opportunity to try. And that's what I've learned the most. And that's the same thing that I would give to somebody as advice. It takes some time to get there. You know, it takes a little bit of experience. You don't know these things until you've stumbled a couple times. Most of the lessons most of us know, we learn the hard way. You don't know how to do something because you got it right. You know how to do something because of all the little tweaks and edits you had to make and changes you had to make along the way as you, where you made mistakes. Hopefully none of those mistakes were critical and fatal flaws. So you get to this point of experience where you can look back. I would just say the sooner you get to the point where you can just be yourself and find an environment, find a company, find a firm, find a job or role that allows you to do that, the more successful and happier you'll be in the long run. I feel like I've done that with Grant Thornton and I'm grateful for this role. I only told them after they hired me, by the way, that I probably would have done this work for free, but I didn't tell them that up front because I could have used the salary and the benefits. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm grateful to have that kind of connection to my work, and I wish that for everyone. Definitely. 
I end every podcast with the same three questions, but before I, I get to that, you have an interesting position. You're a CPA and, and you started doing accounting, you know, just like the rest of us, you know, early on, but now you're Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Grant Thornton, a national firm. What's a typical week like? What does a Director of Diversity and Inclusion do on a daily basis or weekly basis? Uh, well, as soon as I figure it out, I'll let you know how that. <laughs> You know, it's D&I as a career and as a profession is relatively new. And so I don't know that there's a standard answer that you can give, especially if somebody's curious about a position as a D&I consultant or in a D&I role. But I can tell you that what I focus on in a given day somehow has to do with diversity. And I define diversity in this context as understanding the numbers, the data, something we track, identifying groups because we need to be able to report on those groups, whether it's government compliance, think EEO type reporting, or just having data so we can track how we're doing toward goals. Diversity is about understanding those differences, tracking, identifying, measuring, following, supporting, encouraging, understanding. Inclusion is the flip. Inclusion is about culture. Inclusion is about behavior. Inclusion is about Do people belong? Do they feel like they belong? Do minorities feel safe? Do women feel that they have equal opportunity? If you're LGBTQ, can you really bring your whole self to work the way many companies tell you they want you to? And so inclusion is really about mindset, about behavior, and about understanding. It's about how we communicate with each other and how we talk in the small moments and interactions at the coffee pot, as well as the big things that we say to clients and presentations across the firm. And so on any given day, then, I'm either working on a strategy to do some combination of those things better or working very specifically on a project where we're going through the challenges. Let's go ahead and get to the final three questions. Uh, The first of the the three is usually the easiest for the guest. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? I think I cheated. I told you about that earlier. That presentation that I was telling you about last April when I went out to a company, I was talking about diversity, but I did a very almost an intimate type presentation. I thought it was risky. I, I actually started crying when I was on stage because I was sharing a moment when I realized that it started with me and that I needed to change and how that then rippled through and had an effect on so many other things that followed that moment of awareness. And I remember thinking people are falling asleep out there. They're really not interested, but it felt like the right thing to do. And when I was done, I can't tell you how many people came up to me afterwards, as well as reached out to me through LinkedIn and Twitter after the fact and just told me how impactful that was. And I thought, if I could have that kind of a moment, that's the best moment that there is. Because for me, I don't really worry about the pay or the process. I'm always focused on the outcome. And it's a bit of a distraction, I know. But I'm highly motivated by helping drive something that's meaningful change for someone else. So that type of a moment, when I get a compliment like that, Every time. Proudest moment. And if I get another one, I'll be grateful and I'll add that one to my new proudest moment. That does make you feel good. You know, you're making a difference. Well, tell us about a mistake you've made and what you learned from it, of course, because really that's what we're after. But the bigger, the better. We really like the huge, colossal, nasty mistakes. (laughs) Well, they all tend to fall in the same category because I tend to share a lot. I've learned 
only recently, and by recently I mean in the last 10 years, I got a diagnosis of ADHD. I came to understand what it meant for the way that I showed up. And one of the things that I learned is that two things that are really important. Number one, I don't read nuance well. I don't interpret it well. And so if you don't tell me directly what you're thinking, don't think I'm going to know what you think because of the faces you're making or your body posture or the indirect statements you've made. I've not been, I had, in the past, I, had, I wasn't good at that. I'm better now because I know to look for it, but I wasn't good then. So between not reading the cues in the room and then I'm just an open book, if you ask me a question, I will tell you exactly what I think. And I'm open and I give you my heart and I give you my truth. What I've learned though, no single mistake and everything that comes up as a regret for me is the combination of I didn't pick up on the cues in the room and I opened up and shared information, trusted the other person, only to realize the other person took that information and used it in a way that would ultimately hurt me or would not help me or might undermine me. And you'd think I'd learn from that mistake. And I bang my head on the wall when it, has ha- when it happens to think, haven't I learned from this yet? But then I also tell myself I'd rather be open and, and then be closed. And so I'd rather err on the side of sharing at the risk of a hurt. It's deeply personal, the stuff that has been my biggest failure, so I wouldn't share them. But I will tell you that it's in that category. It's work-related, and it has hurt me deeply. But I still feel like I wouldn't go back and do it differently because to do that would mean to lie, and I can't lie. Just be yourself, right? Yep, just be yourself. You'll be better when you're being yourself than when you're trying to be somebody else, right? Very true. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? It was from a coach, and I had just gotten some feedback on, I had done a, I don't know, like a strengths assessment or personality assessment or something, and then she was sharing the results with me, and I got really upset because it was an area that she was sharing with me that I'd been trying to change but had been unsuccessful in changing, and I was at the point where I felt like, what's the point of trying so hard? You know, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I reached over on my desk and I pulled something out. It's a, it's a little, like a decorative rock. And one of the exercises she had me do was to decorate it. And I wrote on there one degree with a little Sharpie. And I'm holding it in my hand. That was the best advice that she ever gave me was one degree. And what she was telling me was that if I'm trying to work on change, I can't change everything. I can't change in a big way. But think of it like if it were a giant ship and I was sailing, you know, a thousand miles. If you just change course by one degree, you're not going to notice it as you look down or even as you look around. And even in the near term, you won't really notice you've changed. But a thousand miles later, you would end up somewhere visibly different, noticeably different. And so what she told me is that when I'm trying to change, don't try the big change. Just try for one degree. There's more to that, but it was really about self-acceptance and it was about managing change, giving myself permission to stumble my way to better instead of constantly expecting perfection out of myself. I'm a perfectionist and I drive myself crazy because my standards are too high for myself. I will remember that lesson always and I even have this little decorative rocks that you can get at the store, like the art store, with a little Sharpie writing on it. One percent. That is something we all need to hear. Thank you. Sure. Happy to share. Well, for our audience, this has been Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. If you haven't yet visited our website, please do so. You're going to find the show notes for Jenna's episode as well as all our other guests. We've got 
close to 120 episodes out there now. The website is whereaccountantsgo.com. Once again, that's www.whereaccountantsgo.com. Well, Jenna, if people wanted to find out more about Grant Thornton's diversity and inclusion program, is, is there a specific part of the website or anything like that where, where people could dive deeper for more information on it? There is. If you go to the Grant Thornton website, there's actually a diversity and inclusion page that talks about our program. I think it's under the About Us section. So you can learn more about what we're doing and how we view diversity, as well as the different business resource groups and programs that we participate in. Perfect. We'll make sure to to include a link on the show notes page as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you to the audience for joining us as well. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.